Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, it seems that one might have had to have been hiding under a rock or at the very bare minimum have silenced all of their news channel notifications to have missed the fact that Queen Elizabeth of England, Elizabeth II, passed away recently on September 8th, 2022. The end of her 70-year reign has been vociferously mourned all around the world by many, while others have taken the increased press coverage of the Queen's passing to call into question the Crown's relevance in the 21st century on a whole variety of different points. Oh, yes. And that is, of course, a point well taken by us on Dressed, but actually not one that we will tackle here today. What we will say, though, is that upon the Queen's passing, our inboxes were filled with requests from listeners for an episode on the Queen and or British royalty style in general. The day of the Queen's death, Cass, I was at FIT, and I stopped counting how many people stopped me that afternoon to ask if we were going to do an episode on her. So... (laughs) Needless to say, there is tons of interest about this topic. Um, And I actually replied to them when they asked, probably not an episode on the Queen in the immediate future, because I knew that this press coverage of her passing was going to probably dominate the news um, for the next few coming weeks. And even if I hadn't already had this episode while in the works, To me, there is something much more provocative and perhaps relevant to today in the telling of the sartorial story of not the queen, but another member of the royal family, and that is Princess Diana. Yes, I mean, needless to say, the world was beguiled by the beautiful and bashful Lady Diana Spencer when she emerged into the public spotlight in 1981, so over 40 years ago, as the fiancé of then-Prince Charles. This relationship seemingly began as the stuff of fairy tales. I mean, she was a 19-year-old kindergarten assistant plucked from relative obscurity, albeit aristocratic obscurity at that, we should say. But she was tapped, you know, as the future queen consort of the British Commonwealth. However, as intimate details of the princess's life and marriage emerged in the coming years, it was revealed that Princess Diana's circumstances were perhaps something less than a dream come true. Yes, often bullied, censored, and silenced in and by the very role that she was expected to inhabit and fulfill Princess Diana's public personhood was a bit of a glamour in both the common and literal sense of that word. You know, certainly the public perceived her as being charming and enchanting, aka glamorous, but the word glamour can also imply a trick that disguises reality. And in both senses of this word, Lady Di was arguably one of the world's most glamorous fashion icons of all time. 
And that is why today we are so pleased to be joined by author Eloise Moran to learn more about Princess Diana, her wardrobe, and the role it played in crafting her public persona. Eloise's book, The Lady Die Lookbook, What Diana Was Trying to Tell Us Through Her Clothes, is a fascinating and detailed examination of Lady Di's sartorial journey throughout the 80s and 90s and details the myriad of ways the princess wielded her clothing choices as a form of silent communication. So Eloise, thank you so much for joining us today on Dress. Eloise, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, you and I actually already had this episode planned for, for a little bit of time now. So it is a timely episode given the Queen's recent passing. Did you want to address that at all at the top of the episode or should we just launch in? Yeah, no, we can talk about it um, now. Obviously, it's pretty crazy in the UK right now. And I think, you know, all of the tradition that exists within my country essentially is um, is really kind of coming out in full show. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty, um, it's pretty amazing to watch it actually and kind of just see them, everyone pay their respects to the Queen. And, you know, she was a really hardworking woman and she really kind of took her duty so seriously and I uh, I think she'll be missed. I think for the most part, she was pretty pretty liked among people. I really like the Queen, so I'm quite sad. It's weird as well having a King and Camilla. Um, so we'll see how that goes, but everyone knows how I feel about Camilla and Charles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you make it quite clear in the book, mm-hmm. I must say. Yeah. <laughs> So the initial question that I'd I'd like to pose to you stems from the very first sentence that you write in the book, which opens, I accidentally became a Princess Diana fashion researcher in the summer of 2018. How did this happy, quote unquote, accident occur? Um, So it really was an accident. I never really had any kind of prior interest in Princess Diana. I think I kind of knew her as this really prominent figure in the UK, almost in the same way that I knew about Marilyn Monroe, just kind of these iconic figures. And I didn't really know that much else about, I mean, about Diana specifically. Um, So I was going through a breakup at 25 and it wasn't just kind of a regular breakup. I actually got married at a really young age. So I got married at 21 and at 25, it was on the rocks and I was in a pretty bad way. And one night I kind of, I watched this documentary called Diana in her own words. And it's actually to this day, still one of my favorite documentaries on the princess. Um, Mm And it's kind of narrated via the secret tapes that she recorded originally for Andrew Morton to kind of inform his book. And she recorded them in secret. So it was kind of a really, you know, powerful way to learn her story, It kind of being posthumously narrated by her. And um, I felt kind of an initial connection to her and which I found interesting and that in itself being interesting why do I why do I feel kind of close to this person or like I relate to this person and then um, I've always worked in fashion so I kind of felt like my natural instinct was to just you know start looking up old visuals of her and I came across honestly it was one or two kind of photos taken of her on the street And I was really surprised that she had, she was wearing such cool clothes because I kind of, you know, knew the big collars and the big dresses. And 
And then I just kind of, it was like a treasure trove. Like I just kept covering (laughs) all these outfits. And at the time, no one was posting Diana. So it really was kind of uncovering it, at least in my eyes for the first time. And I, I kind of had this aha moment where I'm like, well, this was her revenge wardrobe. This was her post divorce kind of new woman unleashing this new kind of energy and I really related to that because I felt like I was doing that a bit and I cut all my hair off I always had long hair and I cut it really short and yeah I kind of felt like Diana was the ultimate like post-divorce role model in a weird way slash style icon slash style icon and that's where um, the account started and I kind of linked together the clothes and the humor behind what I mean obviously it was serious what she was going through but kind of you know, found humor within it. Mm -hmm. And when you say account, you mean the Instagram account that you started with all those images that you started unearthing. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, the account on Instagram is called Lady Diary Revenge Looks. And um, yeah, started it with just a few photos, a few kind of very simple tongue-in-cheek captions. But the hashtag that I had since day one, and I still use to this day, is F-U-C-C. And it means fuck you, Charles and Camilla. (laughs) people People have always been a fan of that. I'm quite curious to see how it shifts now with, you know, we've got a lot of people who are monarchists no matter what. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that there is definitely a bit of a shift. And I think people used to quite enjoy him taking the brunt of my jokes. But now I think people are a bit sensitive at the moment, which I mean, it's all fresh. So, but yeah, um, it was the, the idea of it, the intention was it for it to be kind of the best, the best of her outfits. Most of them people hadn't seen before, at least my generation hadn't. So my the idea was to kind of reveal this incredible wardrobe to people who hadn't necessarily seen it before. And um, kind of from that moment on, and once it picked up in the press, um, there was just this kind of whirlwind of kind of, and an influx of Diana content. And I mean, that's how my account grew is I got one bit of press and then everyone kind of hopped on the Diana train, which is, I mean, it's cool. A whole new generation was introduced to her. Absolutely. For those of our listeners who might not yet have been introduced to her, would you tell us about Lady Diana Spencer's background and when did she first start garnering attention in the press? So um, Diana actually came from a very aristocratic background. Her her family were the oldest kind of sheep farming family in the UK. So they were kind of notorious landowners and very wealthy. She had a turbulent childhood because her mother and her father separated. Her mom actually had an affair with a wallpaper heir and kind of ran <laughs> off with him and it was quite nasty. And I think she lost custody of all the children. So Diana went to live with her father and her father's wife at Althorpe. And, you know, she had a very, I think, comfortable upbringing. She went to school in Switzerland, didn't like it, went to great, obviously perfect education. She came from true privilege, but she was really unhappy, especially during her teenage years. I think that major thing happening in her life between her parents you know disturbed her in a way it would any other children kind of no matter what your background is if that happens in your family it's pretty you know it can be quite traumatic and devastating so um she is definitely 
an upper class girl, upper class stock. And she kind of fell into, um, once she moved sort of to London and she was a young sort of 19 year old girl and got this flat. Um, she definitely was part of this group of people, what we call in the UK, Sloan Rangers. And I don't know, do you want me to explain that now? Or? I would love that because I was not familiar with this term at all. So I definitely learned something and I, I'm sure our listeners will write alongside you if they're not from the UK. Yeah, it's funny because I mean, I definitely know I've always known the term Sloan Ranger. I think most people do in the UK, but definitely if you live in London, you know what it means. Because so just for context, Sloan Street and Sloan Square is a part of um, West London, Southwest London, that is very, has always been, you know, home to very upper class aristocratic people it's also um right next to most people know a lot of american people know where harrods is and that's in knightsbridge and it's basically just an area of london where you know the rich live uh, lived and still do yeah still do um but then it was definitely more divided by class so these um young slony women as we called them (laughs) what you'd imagine the tropes of you know conservative young woman who comes from like a very nice family. So in the late 70s and early 80s, it was kind of these pie crust collars and these long pleated skirts. And it was very tidy. Um, The interesting thing about Sloney dressing is it's almost kind of, I mean, I guess the equivalent in the US, you could say it's kind of like rich girl dressing or in New York, Upper East Side dressing. It's kind of, fashionable to those people within that community in that world and they have their sets of designers that they love they love Caroline Charles and all these other kind of British um, more formal designers but at the time it wasn't really fashionable to anyone else you think it's kind of going going on at the time of you know the punk scene and all these other major moments there's people across London dressing you know pretty wild and you've got the bohemian look in around um, Portobello and rock and roll. So it's kind of this look that was very um, insular. And um, I think the interesting thing about Diana is she was a really slony girl. And I think her she was never considered to be fashionable, especially by the press when she first came on the scene. So it's interesting how she kind of, after a few years in the spotlight, embodied this slowly look and took it to a new level and in a way sort of made it fashionable and made it relevant to people outside that part of London and across the world. And then actually what's quite interesting, when Kate Middleton was, you know, first on the scene dating Prince William, you'd always see her kind of shopping on the King's Road, which is also adjacent to Sloan Square. And um, she was the Sloan of Y2K. So, and again, you know, people were trying to get the Kate Middleton look. So it, Diana really was the first one to kind of take that off-duty Sloney style and make it relevant everywhere. So it's quite interesting. It was never considered to be fashionable before. Now, a lot of this was spurred on by the copious amounts of press attention that she was receiving at the time. And she had actually met her future husband, uh, Prince Charles, as a younger teenager, but then they became engaged when she was 19, correct? And so that's when we really see this, like, spotlight shined on her in a public way. 
Yeah, totally. And also, um, if you watch the footage of when um, she's being first followed by the press, you can see, you know, she was just such a polite girl. She was just brought up really well. She kind of had these impeccable manners, even to these people who were hounding her in the street. There's a video where she almost goes right into a lamppost, you know, Mm -hmm. they were just following her. And you also see that um, she, during that time, she is kind of you almost can get in her shoes and be like, oh, I can imagine she borrowed this piece of clothing from her roommate. She had two female roommates and, you know, really trying to kind of look very put together because she was being photographed. But at the time she had no stylist. Her mum was kind of taking her to Harrods. And it's very, that's a very Sloney thing to do, obviously. Mm-hmm. Harrods that even then was really expensive um, and kind of picking out these very kind of matronly looking outfits. But she was, the reason she was selected was, as she said, you know, she was the virgin, the sacrificial lamb. So I think her clothing really did have to represent that and her sort of purity and, it's quite dark if you think about it now. Right. Well, and also too, what gets really fascinating as the story progresses is how she realizes that power and she starts to wield that power. And we are going to get into that here in a little bit. But before we do, uh, you mentioned the press hounding her. And there's a particular photo that you use in the book from 1980. And you already know exactly which one I'm going to ask you about right now. (laughs) Because this photograph really sums up the kind of like hungriness and the rapacity of the press, even before she became princess for photos of her. So would you tell us a little bit about this photo where she's wearing a Laura Ashley skirt and she's she's tending to two young children and her role as a kindergarten assistant? Yes, totally. It's actually one of my favorite photos from that era, I think, because, you know, she... It's a it's a very simple outfit. She's wearing a skirt with diaphanous fabric and the kind of and the photographers maneuvered her into direct sunlight because they could see that it was kind of semi-sheer. So um, obviously through a camera lens, you can kind of see everything. And there she was, she was trying to give the photographers their photo because they wouldn't stop following her. And you know, she's trying to do her job. She's there with two children. And she kind of would cut deals with the photographers at the time and say, okay, if I give you your shot, will you leave me alone? And in a way, it was kind of sort of prophetic of what was going to come that, you know, you can never bargain with paparazzi because they realized very early on that like she was just this money-making machine. So, mm-hmm. and they also realized they were very manipulative and realized that if they got this bombshell shot, they'd make more money. So, you know, it's quite sad to think she was so young and just being kind of manipulated. It's quite conniving to do that to a young girl, especially someone who's quite shy. And I imagine she was quite mortified, but it's a really kind of, simple chic look she's wearing this little purple v-neck this chain necklace with a a d for diana charm and i really love she's wore that wore that necklace many times i think it was given to her by a friend for her 16th birthday and then this skirt and um you can see all her legs and Mm -hmm. apparently charles teased her at the time and said i had no idea your legs look that good so (laughs) (laughs) yeah he it's it's nice to know he sort of made light of things back then. And um, yeah, I know it was pretty difficult, but one would hope he was, you know, made it as easy as 
possible for her in the run-up to that um, marriage because apparently they only met 13 times before. So it's pretty nuts. (laughs) Yeah, it, it was a little bit of a whirlwind. And Diana even addressed this. She said, I learned to be royal in one week. So it was sort of this crash course for her in terms of not only etiquette, but also what was expected of her in terms of her wardrobe. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? What's really interesting, I mean, I had issues with the way The Crown portrayed Diana in season four, but there is um, one scene where she's kind of rollerblading through the halls of... um, Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, in the the gingham pants and the pink uh, sweater, which obviously was kind of a direct tribute to one of her real outfits. But I think she was just so young and naive and she she did sort of learn to be royal essentially in one week. But it took her a long time to kind of get used to the rules, the regulations, what was required of her. And apparently she loved kind of listening to pop music and um, she loved rollerblading. She loved kind of these very she loved candy even like that just kind of makes you I mean I love candy I'm 30 but um it does make you think like if you get into her mindset she really was so young she loved romance novels she was kind of I think maybe this idealist girl who you know maybe imagined the fairy tale for herself as much as everyone else did I I mean I can't imagine what it's like to be 19 and I think about my sort of dependencies on my my early boyfriends and how mm. exciting it all was. And I mean, for your first true boyfriend to be the future king and then eventually to be married to him is pretty insane. But her clothing at the time definitely kind of signified this sugary, sugary, nice sweetness that um, the world wanted to see. You know, they wanted she'd been presented and kind of offered up again as this virgin girl. So it was lots of pastels, pinks, these very kitschy sweaters. Some had bumblebees on it. It was really kind of cute. And some of those outfits are great. I look at some of them and I would wear wear them. Some of them quite cool with her carpenter pants and headscarves. But um, it is interesting to see how her looks definitely got a bit more cutthroat as the 80s went on. Well, and speaking of cutthroat, because the next item from her wardrobe that I'd like to speak about is quite famous, so much so that when I told someone recently that I was going to be doing an episode with you on Lady Di's wardrobe, their response was, are you going to talk about the sheep sweater? So about the sheep sweater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's talk about the sheep sweater. Um, could you describe the famous sheep sweater and why was it so significant? So um, for anyone who hasn't come across the sheep sweater, which seems crazy to me now because I feel like it's been everywhere, but um, it was a red sweater kind of dotted big, instead of big polka dots, imagine giant white sheep lots of white sheep over the sweater and it there is a lone black sheep and obviously kind of leans into the proverb of black sheep and you know maybe feeling like the odd one out I feel like the just the term black sheep is kind of a weird dated term now and kind of has not great connotations with it but I think the ultimate message of it was you know 
being the odd one out from the crowd or not feeling like you belong among this kind of herd of white sheep. So um, she actually first stepped out wearing it really early on. I think it was just before she got married um, on the polo field to watch Charles play. And it's, um, you know, a very sweet look. She put it together with some jeans and a little kind of red Dorothy-esque heel. And she, I think the thing that made it so significant is maybe the first time she wore it, it wasn't so, I mean, she was wearing lots of kind of sweaters and sweatshirts with little emblems on and sweet kind of kitschy designs. But I think the fact she wore it again three years later in 1980, or she wore it in 1983 or 1984, but either way, she wore it again. And this time the look is a lot more grown up. She's had the help of the stylist Anna Harvey at this point. Um, she's kind of really got the look together with this chic Promosal tote, these big sunglasses, these white jeans, and she kind of, you know, looks like she means business. And she actually, um, it was not the exact same sweater, but she loved the sweater so much. She asked for it to be made for her again because I think she damaged the first one somehow. So I think, you know, that's pretty significant too that she, you know, likely the message still meant something. I think at that point, you know, a few years into being well within the family and royal life I think that's definitely when we see her sort of communicating outwardly via her clothes yeah well she learned she had learned that she had to play the game but she was going to have fun with it if she had to play the game right completely and you do think about just like the act of being gagged or, or silenced and you know not being able to say anything vocally and which also I mean it that didn't just go for her I feel like that was still something major that women were wrestling with at the time you know not having a real voice fighting for a voice in like an 80s workplace like enter the shoulder pads you know um but I think she obviously had the brunt of that and this very old-fashioned and traditionalist institution so I think what she started to realize is, okay, they're all calling me a clothes horse. They're all looking at my clothes. They're not looking at anything else. They don't care what I think, what I have to say. So I, I do think she would kind of, you know, start to, you do see her dissatisfaction appear in her clothes, you know, but then you also see that the way she understood her duty and the way she wanted to kind of, she was such a tactile person. And I think that really comes through in the clothing. She didn't want to wear gloves because she actually wanted to touch the hands of the people when she met them. She wore big chunky bead necklaces when she went to visit children's hospitals. So they'd have something to play with. And she was very considerate like that. So, you know, if you think someone's thinking of those things ahead of their clothing, which, you know, I wear, I mean, okay, I don't work in like a nursery school or a hospital, but I, I don't necessarily think like that when I get dressed. I don't think about how, just the fact she thought like that shows that she's obviously thinking about it on the other side too, where, oh my God, it's driving me crazy. There's all these headlines about me. And at the mm-hmm. time there were a lot of negative headlines about her saying she was controlling, she was dictatorial, she was being difficult. So I think it was her way of hitting back. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. You have an entire chapter in the book called Rebel Rebel or the Rebel Rebel Look. And there, time and time again, are instances of her flat out bucking the system. Um, you know, you talk a little bit about her wearing polka dots, which was not 
considered particularly royal, nor were open-toed shoes. But the Rebel Rebel chapter, you detail all of the menswear-inspired looks that she wore over the years, which I thought was fascinating. What are your thoughts on some of these gender-bending references that she was playing with time and time again? Uh, So I think there's a few things that plays into it. I think um, she had a lot of friends in the music industry. Um, She was very good friends with Dave Bowie. You know, she spent a lot of time with these, obviously, George Michael. They had a great friendship, Elton John. And um, she loved going to rock concerts. And I think part of, you know, even in the 70s with Bowie, you know, his kind of androgynous alter ego and that, and also just, the punk scene in general and kind mm-hmm. of this real, there was just androgynous dressing all around. And I think, you know, other than her, you know, being loving music and being around kind of that culture, but not really being able to kind of embrace it. I think she wore leather trousers once to a concert and got into really big trouble. So um, I think what she could do, is she could wear these um, androgynous kind of tuxedo suits and um, pantsuits. And um, I think there's a couple of things here that's important about it. I think one is just, I feel like she could get away with it because it was, there was kind of this elegant, like it, it's kind of attributed to elegance in the way like 1940s movie stars used to kind of mm-hmm. uh, dress like that sometimes. And, you know, Charlie Chaplin vibes. I think she could kind of get away with it a bit. But there's also the thing where, you know, her body was so, so scrutinized by the press and, you know, by people everywhere. There were people on the dye diet copying what the magazines were saying was her diet when really there was no such diet. It was an eating disorder. And, you know, I think she actually um, stepped out in some androgynous looks while she was pregnant with um, Harry. And it insinuated to me that you know, I think the press were wanting to see her bump. Everyone knew she was pregnant and she showed up and there was no such sign of a bump because she's wearing this kind of, you know, menswear and you can't see anything. And I think that is such a power move. You know, you're not going to use my body to kind of sell papers. You're not going to, you're not going to make money off me tomorrow from literally the curve of my body, which I think says so much. And when I was uh, researching it and writing it, I found that to be quite powerful. And I think all the photographers sort of, bit let down by it where's the bump and then um I also think that she just if you look at kind of again to refer to the um power dressing in the workplace in the 80s and um women kind of coming to work in these these big blazers and shoulder pads and these lots of men's tailoring was around and you know there was a real movement happening and in a way I like to think she was part of that movement through her own kind of androgynous dressing and you know she always complained about the men in grey and then she started dressing in her own suits so I wonder how I it is I mean it's in such contrast to the big frou-frou like frilly dresses and the Emmanuel kind of you know very sweet sugary princess dresses that I mean she always looked happier when she was in those suits so I think that's cool yeah they're 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 really really wonderful and a lot of those photos I had actually never seen before and when I was looking at them the the feeling that I was getting from them was her enjoying the fashioniness of some of those looks in particular 
Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, one really interesting thing about Diana is back in the day, people didn't have stylists. It wasn't like it is now where everyone has a stylist for something. Um, She had the help of Anna Harvey, who was the deputy editor at Book at the very beginning. But I think she only actually helped her full time for about a year. And then she mainly kind of introduced her to lots of designers. But then from then on, Diana's really hands-on with the designers in creating the designs. There's so many designers, um, Belleville Sassoon being one of them, who have shared their sketches where they'd send it to Diana. She'd write her notes. She'd be very specific, send it back. And really, she was collaborating with all these designers. So I actually think Diana was really into fashion and, um, you know, discovered that about herself quite early on and I think you know it's not really like now where you look at the we've got um Kate and Megan where they obviously definitely have help with the stylist I'm sure there's a bit of back and forth between some of the designers for maybe some of the kind of more important looks but I think you've got to give that to Diana she really did she carved out her look by herself and I think with that you see her style evolution as you you know, you and I would when we were, you know, in our 20s and going through the kind of experimental phases. So we definitely see that with Diana. Who were some of um, the other designers that she was working with that were more of her favorite designers? Um, So early on, Catherine Walker was a designer who was there kind of with her from very early days to, you know, the end of her life. And actually, it's a designer that definitely evolved with Diana's style and almost became kind of like the clothing itself almost became Diana's style in a way like it would Mm -hmm. just shift as Diana shifted but they had a very close relationship and Diana loved wearing her clothes um at the beginning obviously David and Elizabeth Emmanuel um who designed her famous wedding dress and the first dress she wore to um a public event so um it was a black plunging neckline. She got into a lot of trouble for wearing it. Um, Prince Charles didn't want her to wear it either because it was black. Black, you weren't meant to wear because it was the colour of mourning. And obviously she was showing a lot of chest. So um, to be honest, most designers who she stepped out wearing, she definitely collaborated in some way. I think in the 80s, it's this a real emphasis on the British designers. Um, and then mm-hmm. in the 90s, she started to experiment with more international designers. And she built these really close friendships with Gianni Versace, uh, the Valentino Garavani, and um, Ralph Lauren, and more. And she, I mean, in the 80s, she did love a bit of Escada. She did love mm-hmm. Escada. And she loved Escada in the 90s too. But I think just in terms of, the outfits and stepping out, she she did have a very close relationship with the designers. And of course, Bruce, Bruce Oldfield, who was responsible for her dynasty die era. So she was a collaborator and, you know, a designer in some ways. You'd call her a designer now if she was doing that. So I think yeah. quite interesting. She was creative directing her look, right, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. She was the creative director of her own outfits, for sure. 
Eloise, thank you so much for joining us on Dress to discuss Princess Diana, her wardrobe, and the role it played in defining public opinion on her success as a royal. Some of our listeners may recall our past discussions of Marie Antoinette and may have picked up on some similarities in terms of the way fashion has been used by the aristocracy for centuries as both a measure and expression of power. And there is so much more to be said on this point that, listeners, we are happy to tell you we will be picking up today's interview on Thursday, continuing this discussion in part two of this episode. Until then, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider what your ensemble communicates next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is of course where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, it is always appreciated. Just like we always appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. We'll catch you with part two on Lady Die on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.